All right, uh, once again, Tim Kiger is going to come up and bring the word to us. Tim? Good morning. Just a uh, note on one of the prayer requests. I met with Jerry uh, McFarland on Thursday, and I believe it was either Wednesday or Thursday he had his final radiation treatment, and so he, uh, he was celebrating along with Bev, and uh, he mentioned that the doctors are talking not in terms of just his cancer going into remission, but of actually being cured. So. Please continue to pray for Jerry that that would be the case, but uh, also rejoice that he is done with his uh, radiation treatments. <clears throat> and I do apologize for my voice. I, for the first time in about uh, 18 months, I seem to have caught a cold. So uh, uh, it's interesting how you don't catch colds when you're not interacting with people, but uh, I seem to have one today. So. I remember very clearly the day that I graduated from seminary, and I'm sure that my wife Susan remembers that day as well. Uh, it had been, in, in many ways, a very long four years uh, for us, and we were glad that that season of uh, training was over. Uh, but as we sat through the, the graduation ceremony, no one was surprised that I did not win the prize for uh, best sermon title selection. Um, so today we have a sermon entitled Dependence Day because today is Independence Day, uh, as you probably know. Uh, and I'd like to, to talk about uh, a different sort of independence as we prepare to go to God's word today. Not uh, as, as the independence that we talk about on July 4th every year, not fighting uh, against the force of an oppressor country, but the, the kind of independence that we strive for every day. The kind of independence that's characterized by statements like, I don't need anyone else, or I can make all my own decisions, or I'm free to do whatever I want without consequences. And you might think you don't strive for this kind of independence, but if you don't, you wouldn't be human. Uh, it's, it's really the most basic way that our sin natures work themselves out, se seeking for this kind of independence. And in a way, you might even say it's the original sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, committed this sin in the garden in the very first days of human history. And... Uh, this is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So what did Adam and Eve do in, in that passage that we just read? What did they do? They, they started their own war of independence against God. They decided that what they wanted was better than to serve the God who had made them, who loved them, who provided for them, who gave them existence and identity. And that one twisted act of independence by Adam and Eve millennia ago, changed the entire course of human history and the nature of the hearts of every human being from that point on. We all inherited what we call a sin nature from our first parents, and all of our sins today are merely derivative of their first sin. 
Here's what the Lord quoted. Uh, I'm sorry, here's the Lord quoted in the book of Jeremiah some 2,600 years ago, speaking about uh, the people of Israel. He says, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, they shall be good for nothing. Sound familiar? He's talking exactly about what Adam and Eve did millennia before. But this notion of independence and autonomy hasn't gone away since then. It's actually been sewn into the fabric of Western culture. Here are a couple of examples from the mid-19th century. The author Charlotte Bronte, speaking through her heroine Jane Eyre in the book of the same title, says, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. And then essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson in his uh, book Self-Reliance and Other Essays says, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. The examples of this quest for autonomy in more recent modern culture are too numerous to mention, but consider this for a moment. According to the U.S. government, marriage rates in the U.S. in 2018 had decreased 24% over the prior 20 years and 41% since 1950. And what that means is more and more people are choosing to not get married, but to spend their lives by themselves. The U.S. birth rate has fallen 15% since 2001 and 51% since 1950. And what Americans spend on home entertainment more than doubled between 2000 and 2020. So each of these statistics reveals a growing trend toward individualism, toward autonomy, toward self-focus, toward selfishness. Because what each one of these things says is I will not be subject to anyone else. I will not be responsible or accountable to anyone else. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to be independent. But thinking back to the way that God created his people to live, we weren't created to live independently from God or from other people. To the contrary, we were created to live in complete dependence on God and on the community around us. Even the Lord Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan to commit the same sin that Adam and Eve did in the garden and to put his own interests ahead of those of his father, quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 when he answered Satan by saying, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was saying, even as the second member of the Godhead, I depend on the Father. You and I were created not to be independent, autonomous beings, but to be what are called theologically contingent beings, receiving our provision, our safety, even our life itself from God, our Creator. Today we're going to look at a longer passage in God's Word that speaks not of independence, but of dependence, specifically dependence on the Lord and upon his love for us. Turn with me, if you will, to John 14, verses 1 through 21. This is on page 901 in your pew Bibles. John 14, verses 1 through 21. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him 
and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, We are humbled uh, at your word. We are humbled, Lord, at your generosity, your grace, your mercy toward us. Lord, give us the faith to believe it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak through me. I am a poor, broken, sinful man. Use my words to glorify your name. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might think with a passage that long, surely this sermon will exceed 45 minutes. A couple of nervous laughs, but... um, yeah, the sermon will not be that long. We're, we're going to, to look at God's word. There, there's certainly a lot that we could plumb from this, but we're going to look specifically uh, at three points to guide us in understanding how God calls us to dependence on him. Those three points are in your bulletin on the handout, and they are Jesus prepares a home for us, Jesus is the way home, and Jesus is at home with us through his spirit. The first point, uh, verses 1 through 4, Jesus prepares a home for us. Let's begin by looking at the heart of our Lord Jesus. In verse 1, he begins by telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. And, And Jesus has said, Similar words multiple times throughout the Gospels. So it doesn't surprise us that he says them here, but, but it actually should. Because look at the context within which Jesus is telling his disciples uh, to not worry. He says these words approximately 16 hours before he's crucified. And we know that Jesus' own heart is troubled as he contemplates his own arrest and trial and crucifixion. John tells us so four times in the preceding three chapters. In in chapter 11, verses 33 and 38, he says Jesus' soul is troubled as he encounters Lazarus' sisters after Lazarus has died. In chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus speaks publicly of his approaching death and says, now my soul is troubled. And in chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples will betray him, and we're told that he's troubled in his spirit. And so all of these events in the the preceding uh, three chapters have taken place within days of 
Jesus telling his disciples here, let not your hearts be troubled. And so we're perhaps a little perplexed. Jesus would have every right to focus on his own grief and his own fear at this moment, but instead he comforts his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, even as his own heart is breaking. And then he goes on to tell them, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, and I will bring you there to dwell with me. While one who valued autonomy would have looked to his own interests first, here Jesus, who has always been dependent on his father, as we saw in the passage we just read, he's always been dependent on his father, he says to his friends, I love you. And I care about how you're going to interpret the events of the next few days. Here's what I'm doing. What does it mean that Jesus prepares a place for his disciples in his father's house, except that his disciples would live there? And they won't stay there for a while as guests. Jesus isn't making up the guest room for them. They will live there permanently in the family quarters as sons. As a matter of fact, Jesus refers to his disciples as his brothers for the first time just a couple of days after uh, the the passage that we read today on Easter morning. He tells the women uh, who have come to anoint his body at the tomb, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He's never called them that before. There's something that has happened between the, the, the night before he was betrayed and Easter Day, where the status of these men has been changed. They're no longer disciples. They're no longer friends. They're closer than that. They're brothers. Ironically, Jesus is the only one among his many brothers and sisters who has never experienced true independence, true autonomy from God. I'm sorry, (laughs) I I misread that. Ironically, Jesus is the only one among his many brothers and sisters who ever experienced true independence, true autonomy from God. And he knew what a true and literal hell that was. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus was completely independent. He was completely cut off from the love and the care and the mercy and the comfort and the hope of his father. That is, after all, what true autonomy brings. And Jesus knew what a bitter agony it was. If you're someone who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are his sister or his brother. You already have a place in the Father's house prepared for you, but you can't get there on your own merits. You can't make a reservation and pay your own way. Only Jesus can prepare a place for you. And he has prepared it gladly with his own literal blood and sweat and tears. And that brings us to the second point. Jesus is the only way home. Jesus makes, in verse 6, of our passage today, what is referred to in our modern culture as an uh, exclusive truth claim when he tells Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, the world today has a very dim view of exclusive truth claims because conventional worldly wisdom says there is no such thing as objective truth. Nothing about me as an individual is necessarily true about you. And if no one else can tell you the truth, that does make it a little challenging to know exactly what the truth is. I get confused when I think about this, and and I I think it should be confusing. If you do too, uh, here's some help from the online news and blog site, The Huffington Post. They have some helpful advice about how to discover truth. And I'm, I'm quoting from uh, one of their writers on their site. She says, Are you ready to live a life of truth 
and self-acceptance. Live your truth right here, right now. What does that mean exactly? It means to live your most truthful self. It means that inside you is a person waiting to jump out and live in truth and openness. Most of us spend our days living up to expectations and definitions that other people impose upon us. In this way, you, me, and all of us are living to be someone different than who we truly are. But this is a lie. It's time to live your own truth and own it. And so here are four steps that she gives in living your truth. The first step is accept who you are at this moment. Accept who you are, and I I mean fully accept it without judgment or blame, and feel the floodgates of progress open up before you. You are perfect right here, right now. Remember it and believe it. The second step is acknowledge who you are. The true you, the one hiding behind past definitions, is ready to emerge. Let yourself break free from the cocoon and fly. And the third step is define your truth. If you stop and listen and feel your inner self, you'll become aware of the truths that lay within you. And then the fourth step is live loudly and proudly. Let no one deny your truth. Be honest and full in your truth. Don't hide behind judgment, self, or uh, society-inflicted boundaries or anything else. Your personal truth is just that, truth. Haven't we been told to always tell the truth? So do it loudly and proudly. So hopefully you weren't writing those points down because I will tell you, as an expert, they are wrong. But the article ends with this less than great commission. Now go and live your truth and I will be right beside you. So the irony of that statement, two ironies I guess, one is that this author, in, in giving these steps to finding and, and uh, validating your own truth, when she says, figure out your own truth and I will be there right beside you, that can't happen. Because by her own definition, what's true for you can't be true for her. There's going to be some conflict. There are going to be some ways in which that the two of you don't see eye to eye. And so how can she be right there beside you? But the other problem, the other irony, is that truth simply doesn't work that way. That's not truth. It's a lie. You see, you can imagine what your own unique truths are, but imagining them doesn't make them so. We see this in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve believe that they can live independent of God's law, but the result of doing that has devastating circumstances. They're forced out of the garden. They lose their special relationship with God. And they're subject to lives of suffering. Finding our own truth always ends in disaster. Up to the present day. One example is transgender individuals who undergo gender reassignment surgery. Uh, People who... Uh, go through gender reassignment surgery, do it because they believe that they are living out their own truth. They hope that it will make them happier individuals. But did you know that in the largest study of post-op transgender individuals, it's noted that 10 years and more after surgery, the suicide of Uh, of of trans individuals, a suicide rate, rather, of trans individuals is 19 times higher that of the general population. It just proves that as a group, they're not happier. As, As a group, they're finding that there is something wrong with the truth that they've bought into. My point here isn't to pick on transgender people or to ridicule those who hold a secular worldview. We, we should pray uh, for these folks. We should love them. We should walk alongside them and point them toward Jesus. Rather, going back to Jesus' claim that he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, 
and that no one comes to the Father except through him, we're struck with the fact that he's right. The, the couple of examples that I give, gave you might seem exaggerated, but they're exaggerated to, to, to make the point quickly that there is only one truth. There is only one way home, and that's Jesus. Have you tried to make your own life work in your own way, in your own wisdom, following your own truth? Even more important, how have you tried to earn God's favor in your own strength? Have you tried to be a good person? Have you tried really hard to keep the law? Have you been helpful to other people? None of these is bad, but none of them makes God love you. When Jesus says that he's the only way to God, he's restating what he said in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, nothing that you or I do or fail to do counts for anything when it comes to our position before God. Jesus did lay down his life for those who trust in him, as John later tells us in 1 John 2, 2, as the propitiation for our sins. The the word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice and an appeasement for sin, an appeasement for wrath. And the article, the, there, means that there is only one propitiation, and Jesus is it. The Bible tells us that we're all sinful people and that we sin repeatedly, even when we're at our best. The Bible also tells us that all sin is rebellion against God and makes him so angry that only our deaths would satisfy his wrath. But Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for us, taking our own sins on his back. He died in our place as God's wrath was poured out on him and rose to life again as the promise of our forgiveness and new life. Jesus suffered the wrath of God so that you and I never would. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the life because he died for us and now lives forevermore, sharing his everlasting life with us. And that brings us to the third and final point. And this is a a brief point that will lead us into the Lord's uh, Supper. But Jesus is at home with us through his spirit. Jesus is at home with us through his spirit. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus promises that he will ask the Father to send the disciples what he calls another helper who will be with them forever. Jesus will be leaving them rather momentarily, but this other helper will be with them for all time. The helper is the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls here the spirit of truth. Reading beyond the boundaries of today's text, if you, if you glance down at verse 26, we read this. Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit reminds us of what Jesus said, and he applies it to particular situations that you and I face every day. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who protects us. He is the one who convicts us of sin. But he's also the one who testifies to our hearts on an unending basis that God does love us, that he does forgive our sins, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, making us more and more complete daily. Jesus tells us, I'm sorry, John tells us in 1 John 3, 19 and 20, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
Brothers and sisters, the only way we can approach the Lord's table now is to trust in the fact that God is greater than our heart. That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is greater than our sin and that he truly does forgive us. Each time we partake of the Lord's table, God gives us anew the invitation to come home and to be warmly received into the Father's arms. Each time we, uh, we, we take of the elements of the table, we, we receive by faith anew the promise that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. We, we receive anew by faith the reality of what Jesus is saying here, and that is that the Holy Spirit is with us forever. The living God is present in us forever. He will never leave us. And each time we approach the Lord's table in faith, Jesus again offers us his comforting words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If you are a follower of Jesus, then no matter what you've done, where you've failed to keep the law, where you've shown a lack of love to God or your neighbors, there is forgiveness. If you don't believe what I've just said, then pray and ask the spirit of truth to convince you now. Let's take a moment of silence and allow that truth to sink into us as we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper.
this meal.